1: Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. Uh, It is a Monday, and before we dive into this Monday show, let me remind you that we are currently offering—it's a Cyber Monday Monday only deal. December second, you can get an annual subscription for seventy-five percent off. Uh, That's an unreal deal. It's a Monday Cyber Monday deal only. There's a link on DuckTerritory.com for you to go. Uh, and check out all the information on that. Uh, that also means that's a great entry point for you to get CBS All Access as well. Uh, this, the streaming platform that comes with that. So, uh, Eric, let's look at. We're gonna we're gonna talk about a couple different ranging topics on this show. It's a different week. It's a it's a unique week um, because Oregon has won the Pac-12 North which we knew about a couple of weeks ago, but they've won the Pac-12 North. So while everyone else's regular season is over, they their season continues. They play Utah in the Pac-12 championship game. So we'll discuss that. We'll discuss the Civil War performance, uh, a 24-10 victory for the Ducks. And we'll also discuss the fact that because of Oregon making the, the conference championship game, that eats into one week of recruiting uh, that's been very important for Oregon staff and for everyone else across the country as well. Uh, and also dive into, um, some recruiting news because the Ducks have landed a couple verbal commitments, um, both on the defensive side of the football, both are big time prospects. So we'll go into that as well. Uh, let's, let's go back though and, and rehash Saturday's 24 to, to 10 victory over Oregon State. For you, does does it get any better? Is there any silver lining that you you could find when you gave your your grades?
0: Not a lot, if, I, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Uh, I, I mean, I think I think you. I mean, the defense played, and I went and rewatched everything again. I thought the defense played even better on the second watch through. I, I mean, aside from two drives, basically the entire game, Oregon defensively was was pretty spectacular. I thought and. Um Isaiah Hodgins basically was only involved in the fourth quarter of the game. I thought the defensive backfield did a great job against one of the premier wide receivers in the Pac-12. And I know he didn't have his quarterback, but you go back and kind of just watch how that all unfolded. They did a great job of, of limiting his involvement kind of until the end of the game there. And then he, he I think, had, I think, seven catches for like 60 yards in the fourth quarter or something like that. But I but, um, thought th- that was impressive o- offensively. I, it, it was Almost worse than than I've seen. I mean, it, it was just not very good. And I, I think you enter this week with Utah, and I know we're going to talk about that, you know, extensively later on in the podcast. But um, you have to be genuinely concerned about how Oregon's going to find ways to to move the ball down the field. Um, if, if they perform similarly to the way they did against Oregon State, which we should say Oregon State is like arguably the worst defense in the conference, and Utah is undoubtedly the best. Um this could be a game where Oregon doesn't score a whole lot of points at all. Um, and so they need to find some stuff out, figure it out, and they need to do so really quickly because, it's again, it's a short week, games on Friday. Um, but the last time we saw this offense perform, it wasn't very good. And we should say it wasn't very good against Arizona State really until the fourth quarter um, when they kind of got some stuff going against, that obviously, an Arizona State defense that was probably playing a little bit more soft, a little press coverage to kind of avoid – the big explosion plays. So, um, or should say not press coverage, but you know what I mean? Prevent coverage. Uh, so yeah, I, I just think you have to be concerned, really concerned. I think this week about just how Oregon's going to find ways to score points in this game. It's probably going to be a game where they're going to have to be lights out defensively and be significantly better offensively to really be in the game.
1: Surprising that Oregon state had more yards than Oregon, 380 to 365. Uh, Oregon State ran more plays than Oregon, so that but that does mean Oregon had a better average per play. Um, but GBO was... was I, I don't think he... He didn't win the game, but he didn't also lose the game for Oregon State. Um, I think Oregon kind of stacked the box a little bit and prevented uh, Oregon State's offense from being able to run the football. I mean, Jamar Jefferson ran just for 81 yards. He did have a touchdown, uh, you know, but... Jibier ran for 25, Artibias Pierce ran for 25, B.J. Baylor ran for six. So basically everybody was bottled up in the run game, and Oregon's game plan was just make someone other than Isaiah Hodgkins beat you. Uh, and really no one else had any kind of a standout game. I mean, Trayvon Bradford, a senior for the Beavers, had six catches for 53 yards. He was targeted a team high 13 times, which is a game high 13 Um I agree with you. The defense for Oregon played pretty well and pretty impressive. I would have liked to have seen maybe a, a couple more turnovers with, with GBA, considering um backup yeah. quarterback. He really hadn't played much. Um But overall, you know, Oregon State was, what, what was it, 5 of 16 on third downs, 1 of 3 on fourth downs. Uh When they got they, – they had one turnover. They were sacked a couple times. So – Oregon's defense, I think, played pretty admirable, also considering how poorly Oregon's offense, uh, played in that game. Now, I guess the question becomes, can, does Oregon, can they play that bad again? Like, is that possible? Or, like, there's just no way that this team's gonna allow themselves to play that poorly a second straight week, even against a better opponent, right? Like, you have to think this group kind of refocuses, dials back, or, or is this a bigger concern?
0: In theory, you'd think they would play better, you know, or, or more sound and execute better against Utah. But I, I'd also say, like, they weren't good against Arizona State. And I think that's part of what's frustrating is this is a, you know, I think that Oregon, Oregon State game, that's an outcome you would expect if Oregon had spanked Arizona State pretty good and was playing kind of with house money. And this game didn't mean a whole bunch, you know, mean and they're overlooking the game or something like that. But after. The way the game in Tempe played out, I just didn't expect them to be this discombobulated. I mean, they didn't, offensively in particular, it was just, it just wasn't good. And yeah, I would expect that they'd be better. I hope they'd be better. I mean, this, if they're, if they're not playing their best football or at least working towards that in a conference championship game, Um then that's a huge problem and a huge concern, and, and I, I do think, it I mean, Oregon is not playing its best football this season right now. I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, I think they kind of peaked, um you know, in that USC game uh, at times against Washington State offensively. They, they had played pretty well, like, same thing against Washington in that second half, but um, Colorado obviously being another standout performance, but like these last couple of games, again, have not been particularly impressive, um, especially offensively, and uh, it has to be highly concerning because it's not just one bad week. It's two bad weeks. And, you know, at the Arizona game, they scored 34 points. There's some positives there. But it also wasn't like the very best we'd seen Oregon play either. So uh it's kind of three straight weeks where it's kind of subpar to below par play from this Oregon offense in particular. And I think that has to be really concerning because – Utah just doesn't beat itself, and I don't know. I don't know how deep you want to run into the Utah preview stuff, but like, if you look at the numbers, this is a defense that is absolutely one of the best in the country. And if Oregon performs or, or is, you know, kind of struggles the same way that we've seen the last couple of weeks, like they it could be a game they only score one or two touchdowns. I mean, genuinely, like, or or less than that, with just how good Utah is. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I don't expect they're going to be as bad as they were last week, but I also didn't expect them to be this bad last week after they were so bad against Arizona State either.
1: How much do we do we look at this and say, can Oregon win a, a 10-7? Can they make it like a 10-7 game against Utah? Like, is Oregon's defense that good, you feel like, playing that well going into this conference championship game, that you feel like it, that Oregon's defense could make it into... You know, one of those SEC-style games where it's thirteen to ten or nine to ten or fourteen to thirteen type of a football game.
0: I mean, that would be best case scenario, right? I mean, just in terms of like, if Oregon's offense can't play at a level, the defense makes enough plays and and Oregon wins a really low-scoring game. But you also look at what Utah's done offensively. Um, in Pac-12 play. They've scored more than 30 points in every game since USC besides against Arizona State, and that was 21-3. to 3. I mean, 38 against Washington State, 52 against Oregon State, uh, 35 against Cal, 33 against Washington, 49 against UCLA, 35 against Arizona, and 45 against Colorado. Some of those defenses I just ran through there aren't particularly good defenses, and I think Oregon's better than basically all of those defenses with the exception of Cal and Washington are probably about even maybe Oregon is favored in those two. But um, this is a Utah offense that's really performing well right now. That They seem to have kind of figured some stuff out. Zach Moss has been an absolute animal, you know, the last couple, you know, six weeks of the season. I think, uh, you know, 200 yards against Arizona. He also had 100-yard games um, against California, Washington, UCLA. He had 99 yards against Arizona State, 121 against uh Oregon State only had 88 against Colorado this last game, but like they're figuring some stuff out. So, best case scenario, sure, but I mean, Oregon would have to perform at a very, very, very high level defensively. I'm not saying it's impossible, um, but it it, it would. I would say this: if if they're able to make it like a 10-7, 13-10 kind of game, that would be the most impressive defensive performance this season from this Oregon defense, in my opinion. Alright, let's
1: shift here gears towards some recruiting. We'll, we'll get back to the Utah matchup more in particular here in a little bit, but um, big week, big couple weeks for the Oregon football program off the, off the football field on the recruiting trail. Let's start with Noah Sewell, uh, Oregon's five star verbal commitment for the class of 2020. Second straight year, Eric, now that Oregon has gone out and landed a, Five-star defensive prospect uh, to to come play for this defense, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I was kind of surprised at when you look at the all-time commitments for Oregon and the all-time top commits. I was expecting a majority of those guys to be offensive players, <laughs> and it's it's pretty evenly split. So that that in of itself surprises me. But Sewell is now the tenth five-star recruit to commit, and he's the ninth highest player ever. Uh, to give a verbal commitment to Oregon.
0: He, he is. <laughs> if you haven't, and I know the commitment's a little bit, you know, in the rearview mirror, so a lot of fans have probably gone and watched the highlights and kind of read up on Noah Sewell. Um, if you haven't, like, it's it's fun to watch his highlight tape. It's about as fun as you're going to have. I would say, honestly, of, like, we, we do, I do a film review for every Oregon commitment. I, I think Sewell's the most fun I've had watching a, a highlight reel for an Oregon commitment since I've been doing it for about three years, uh, he is just a different breed of, of athlete. You don't see guys, you know, about 270 pounds who can move like that. And who, I mean, frankly, like you watch it the way he, you know, tackles players or the way he, when he's carrying the football breaks, tackles. And it's, it's, it's like, it's unlike what you see on a lot of these tapes. I mean, he is just a big physical, strong, and you call him a freak. I mean, he's, he's an absolute unicorn. And I know, you hear that term a lot in basketball, with like the seven-footer that can dribble and shoot the three. Um, at his size, at 270, the way he's able to move and run, you know, sideline to sideline, um, when he's carrying the football, run away from you know players probably almost 100 pounds lighter than him. Uh, he is just athletically really, really impressive. And again, the physicality stands out too. The genetics are clearly very, very strong with the Sewell family, and, and Oregon is getting now a, another potential star on that defensive line and. Uh, he could play linebacker. He could play, you know, with his hand down. He could play outside linebacker, inside linebacker. I, I think a lot of versatility there. Um, and with the way Kayvon Thibodeau has picked up his play at the end of the season, with how good Mace Funa has looked at times, I mean, the future for Oregon in that front seven is really, really bright. I think. And you you pair him with uh, with those guys, and and you know, Isaac Slade Naita comes back next year. Uh, there's going to be some guys up front, and I know they're also losing Troy Dye and Bryson Young, Lamar Winston, uh, Drayton Carlberg, some of those players, but I think that front-on-seven is going to continue to be really, really strong. And Sewell's just someone like – and I wrote it in my film review uh, about, I guess, 10 days ago now. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if they find ways to get him the ball offensively, like around the goal line, because you watch people try to tackle him at the high school level in Utah, and obviously there's are smaller defenders than what he's going to face in the Pac-12, but – it takes five or six guys to get him down sometimes. He's just a, a again, a different breed in terms of his size and, and blend of athleticism. It's pretty impressive to watch. Yeah,
1: he's, I think he's a player that Oregon hasn't had a lot of, you know, of, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the physical guy that's six foot three, six foot two, 260 pounds and moves like a running back or, you know, like he's just physically different. Like when Haloti Nada showed up, Like, that was a guy where, like, that's not your typical freshman. When Jonathan Stewart showed up, you were saying the same things of, like, wow, that guy is not your typical freshman. The Anthony Thomas, like, while he wasn't the biggest guy, the speed and the explosiveness that he had in his game, you were like, yeah, that's different. And while Sewell isn't the highest rated player in the country, he's 20th. And, you know, among the five stars, um, which is obviously still really freaking good. Um, he just looks different. Like, he, he does a lot of things that you just don't see on the football field. And the thing that makes me most excited to see him play out his career at Oregon is it feels like it could be at a whole bunch of different positions. Like, is it inside linebacker where he's ranked and he's the second best inside linebacker in the country? Uh, Or does he b- maybe bounce to the outside and play on the outside as an outside linebacker or at that stud position? Or if he continues to, to grow and, and stack on weight and get bigger, does he maybe move down to play defensive end? Or on passing situations, does Oregon put him from inside linebacker to a defensive end position or a defensive tackle position? I mean, it feels like you mentioned it, the unicorn aspect of it, but it feels Truly, like he could play literally almost anywhere along that front seven.
0: And that's the crazy part, right? Is that versatility is is like he could play almost like five or six position, positions defensively. I think, um, and, and that's where it gets really fun. That's where I'm sure Andy Avalos is sitting up here going, like, man, it's going to be really <laughs> exciting to figure out like the mix of how do you play Sewell, Funa, and Thibodeau, you know, going forward. And that's not even including some other really young, talented young players like. Just finding ways to utilize those guys skill sets from down to down. Like I, I think, I think, you know, with as creative as he's been this year, um, in terms of personnel stuff, I think he's going to have a really fun time with a player like Sewell who, like, like you said is there's a, just a handful of different ways you could utilize him. And, you know, obviously they're going to find the best positions to put him in, but I could see that being a lot of different things. I mean, I think he's going to be kind of a jack of all trades type of guy when he gets here. And, and that's what makes him, you're right. So exciting is the value of of almost kind of like what we've seen from Calvin Throckmorton on the offensive line where it's like, oh, he can play right tackle, right guard, center, left guard, left tackle. Okay, well, he can do everything. Uh, I think Sewell's going to be that kind of guy where, you know, in a pinch he might be playing one spot, but they like him here best. But, hey, this week we need him here because of a matchup thing. I just think he's that versatility is super beneficial to a defense.
1: There's also the aspect of, look, We see this in the NBA. We see this in college basketball. We see this in college football. We see this in sports. Great players want to play with other great players. It it, it doesn't matter what level of, of sport. Talent gravitates towards other talent. And now that Oregon has stacked two really good recruiting classes on top of each other in 2018 and 2019, we're seeing that play out now in 2020 where even though Oregon has signed some back-to-back classes, guys are, are going to look at Oregon because, oh, wow, Kayvon Thibodeau went to Oregon. Oh, wow, Mace Funa went to Oregon. Oh, wow, Pene Sewell went to Oregon. I need to look at Oregon because all of these top guys in my region are giving Oregon a serious look or going there. And I need to figure out why and if, if that's the right fit for me. And we're, we're seeing – elite talent stack on top of each other. And I think the fact that, look, getting a five-star is big, but I think being able to go now and two years in a row, be able to say you've landed a five-star recruit, if not maybe more, because there are a couple still on the board for Oregon. Um, you, you can go out and, and really tell, you know, the elites of the elites that, Hey, you need to come here because X, Y, and Z are also coming here or have already come. And, it's not going to surprise me if Oregon lands another five star in, tw- in the 2020 class or if a couple more follow suit in 2021 just because it's now becoming a norm where elite, the elite of the elite go to Oregon and Noah Sewell is just another sh- sign of that happening for Oregon. Uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll, we'll be back on the and Audibles podcast.
0: Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: All right. Welcome back to the odds and audibles podcast. I'm Matt Pream. Eric Skopel is with me as always. And Eric, we were talking about recruiting and verbal commitments with Noah Sewell. Uh, Oregon also landed another inside linebacker a year later. Uh, in the recruiting world, Keith Brown, inside line, the number one inside linebacker for the class of 2021, who is actually from the state of Oregon, Lebanon, Oregon, uh, up just about 40 minutes north of, of Eugene, maybe a little less than that. Um, four star kid, been on campus a, a bunch. And I, I think once Noah Sewell committed, it was kind of a foregone conclusion Keith Brown was going to commit because both those guys have shown up, uh, to multiple, either Saturday Night Live events or uh, a football game for an unofficial visit. And they've kind of hit it off. They've kind of become really good friends. And Keith was always, I think, really high on Oregon before Noah Sewell's commitment. And it was probably likely he was going to land at Oregon. But once that happened, it was kind of like, okay, now when's Keith Brown going to go public and make his verbal commit happen? But look, this is a big deal, going out and getting the state, state of Oregon's top prospect uh, and a guy like Keith Brown.
0: Yeah, and this is, uh, and I was actually going to mention that earlier when we were talking about kind of the way you're stacking classes and the domino effect and the momentum that happens in recruiting with Brown because of that relationship with Sewell because I think that pretty clearly uh, is a pretty clear indication and example of how that stuff plays out where those two guys are really good friends or are developing this relationship. And once Sewell jumps, Brown's kind of like, okay, now it's my time to do that. And, and it's possible that they're – are other players that that could happen with going forward. But with Brown, yeah, it, it's nice having an in-state guy that is, I don't want to say worthy of the offer, but like really, really belongs at this level and is is, is a player that Oregon not only has targeted but really, really wants um, from the state because that hasn't really been the case the last few cycles. Um, there have been players for sure, but you kind of have to go back to 20, I think it was, was it 2018 with Talanoa? Funga and and Chase Cota with with those guys to when there was a player of of this caliber in the state. So Keith Brown and and we've seen him a couple times in the spring and and summer at some of these camps around the state, and he is physically certainly fits the part. And I I, in my film review I put up on the site on Sunday, I compared him a little bit to like Tyson Coleman, the 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 old Oregon linebacker in terms of like body type, how they move and kind of how they play. He runs really really well east to west. Obviously much much smaller than Noah Sewell, he's about 40, 50 pounds lighter at 220 pounds, but physical when he, when he arrives, uh, you know, people feel it. I, I just think a guy with a ton of upside. And when you have got a player, uh, with this kind of caliber and, and that carries this much weight in the state, you have to go get him and getting him this early, I think sets up, uh, you know, Oregon's developing a really nice 2021 class right now with, with three four star recruits with McGee, uh, seven McGee, the running back. A top 100 running back uh, Anthony Beavers a top 150 athlete um, that's three guys in the top 150 that are committed to Oregon in that class and you talk about stacking class after class after class well 2018 2019 are strong classes 2020 is going to looks like has a potential to finish up among the best in program history and then you look at 2021 and that's where things could even take another step so um you have to be I think really excited with the way things are going on the recruiting trail. And it, that typically is the way it goes. You know, the trend is when you perform really well on the field and you have a good recruiting staff, this is kind of the momentum that carries. And I think you're starting to see that with Oregon here with a 10-win season, with winning the Pac-12 North with a chance to win the Pac-12 and play for a Rose Bowl. Um, the recruits are paying attention. And certainly on the West Coast, I don't think there's a, you know, at least in the recruiting perspective, a hotter program than Oregon right now.
1: It's interesting because – the 2021 class, like you said, they've already got three four star guys. Two guys that are almost, you know, one of them's top 107 McGee. Keith Brown's three positions away. Anthony Beavers is 126th in the country. Jackson Lights, a center, um, has more than a couple of offers from Power Five schools that you respect and say, Hey, if they offer this guy, he must be pretty legit. But there's a good possibility that in 2021, Oregon could have, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's it's more than probable Oregon finishes in the top ten for for 2020. For 2021, it's already positioning where they could be in the top ten again. And while people are gonna say, "Oh wow, well, a lot could happen in 2021," and so far away until these guys decide, and yes, that's true. But the landscape of college football recruiting has drastically changed in the last three or or four years, where guys are making decisions earlier. Guys are making a top five earlier. Guys are releasing their groups. I, mean, I, I talked to um, one of Oregon's top offensive line targets, regardless of class, who's a 2021 guy, uh and there's a story up on duckterritory.com. He's going to be releasing a top five in January. He doesn't that, – that's a full year away <laughs> until he signs. Yeah. And it, it, so while, yes, things could change, guys are deciding earlier and earlier, and Oregon is adapting. This was an issue for Oregon four or five years ago in that, you know, the the recruiting landscape had changed and the previous coaching staff at the time was still operating under the assumption that they could kind of recruit from late July, early August and and be able to put together a a top 25 class in about three or four months um, of hosting guys for officials and unofficials and, and doing all the heavy lifting. That's just not the case anymore. The heavy lifting starts now for the 2021 class, getting guys on campus for unofficial visits. I mean, I can't tell you how many times Oregon's had uh, – they've, they've probably had, I want to say, 40, 50 guys from 2021, 2022 on campus already for football games. I mean, that's huge, setting yourself up for runs down the stretch for recruiting.
0: Yeah, and there's no doubt that that stuff pays off. Um, you know, recruiting it becomes kind of an accumulative effort in terms of you get these guys on campus, the earlier you can, the bigger impact that has on their recruitment. And, and you're right in terms of like – it does feel like they're hitting the fast forward button a little bit, which is good to see to a certain degree. Um, it, it certainly, I think, it makes it easier to build your classes, uh, you know, with with the kind of uh, expedited, I guess, rate in terms of how this stuff plays out. And and you're right. I think Oregon's done a great job of making sure there's always, you know, there's not never too too often with you know a long break where there's not a thing you want to come up to Eugene for in terms of. Saturday Night Live camp in terms of coming to spring practice, in terms of going to fall practice, in terms of, in terms of going to games, um, there are always, you know, they, they, they've maximized that ability, I guess, to just kind of always be a place that's an attraction, and that pays off. And, and you're seeing that, like we've said, just in, in terms of recruiting, I don't think you could really ask it to be too much better. Um, I mean, aside from landing, like, USC classes from, like, the mid-2010s, where it was every five-star on the West Coast right. ends up in Oregon which is probably never going to be the case. Maybe maybe it will be. Maybe we're getting close to that, but um just in terms of the way this is going, like I think you have to be really really excited um just about the direction that the recruiting is going and it's already been uh, it's it's a different era for Oregon, you know, in terms of recruiting. I think you're going to see you know year after year it take a step up or at least be on that same level of you know, maybe, maybe it's not 2020 is the best class of program history. Maybe 2021 surpasses 2019 is that. And that's the kind of the thing where every couple of years they take it another step and, uh, and it just feels like that's the way it's progressing. It doesn't feel like we're looking at a program that is kind of peaking. It feels like they're still kind of a moving target and they're just taking a step after step after step.
1: Let's discuss real quick before we get to Utah. This past weekend, we're going to had Justin Flo on campus. Uh, five star recruit, number five player in the country, inside linebacker. Um, Oregon had a bunch of other guys on campus as well. And I, Eric, based on early reports, I, I said earlier that Oregon's more than likely going to land a top five class or a top 10 class, uh, in this, con- in, in the country for, for 2020. And while there haven't been any commitments yet, um, there were only a couple of handful of guys that were uncommitted looking at Oregon, uh, Flow is the big one, and getting him on campus in and of itself is big. Now, does Oregon lead? Probably not. Clemson's the school that probably has that position. But based on early reports that we've heard, things are going well with, with Flow. The visit went well with with his family. Now it becomes, can Oregon finish the season strong, and what does the in-home visits look like, uh, and can Oregon get him, to, can they keep him to be the last visit? That, that That's always going to be important there, but – what, looking at this class though, I, I feel like there are a couple guys away. And look, Flo is a five star still available. Darnell Washington is a five star tight end, defensive end, athlete type guy. He's being recruited by Oregon to play tight end. That's still available. DJ Rogers, a four star guy, from, tight end from Washington is still available. Gary Bryant, another four star top 100 guy, uh, at receiver is still available and looking at Oregon. So, It feels like Oregon's going to have some kind of finish. And then I will say this: people are going to say, "Well, what other names are out there?" Doesn't seem like there's a lot. Well, Oregon only has room for two, three, four more guys, maybe, depending on a couple things that play out. And then we're seeing this now across the country: Van Fillinger just decommitted from Texas, a four-star defensive end from Utah. Um, Probably Oregon's probably going to reach out. They probably already have reached out. He's probably he had interest in Oregon before he committed to Texas. Uh, but guys are going to decommit. It's, it's the coaching carousel season. Guys are, you know, coaches are moving. Coaches are getting fired. That's going to impact recruiting. And so I've said this from the very beginning. There's going to be some unnamed guy that we just haven't heard of or we haven't talked at all about in months because he's committed to another school. He's going to open up and he's going to land at Oregon. I feel pretty confident that's still happening. Who that is, I don't know, but it, it always happens every year. There's always going to be one or two guys that in January or in December all of a sudden pop up on the radar because they open up their recruitment for whatever reason uh, and Oregon swoops in and signs him. So while there's not a lot of spots left, there's a ton of intrigue and a ton of options still available there. Uh, let's look to Utah now. Pac-12 championship game. We – while we were recording this podcast, there's kind of an yeah. inside joke with all of us. of, uh, And some of the Duck fans have actually brought it to our attention that Oregon hasn't won a football game in which Chris Fowler, Kirk Herbstreit, and Molly McGrath have called for ABC since uh, the 2015 Rose Bowl against Florida State. That would be the 2014 season. So, yeah. l- long time. Well, guess who's calling the Pac-12 championship game against Utah?
0: Yeah, it's it happens to be Kirk Herb Street, which is Oregon's kryptonite right now for some reason. Um, <laughs> I, li- my, my literally my response when I when Matt posted that in our Slack channel is, uh oh, it's a loss.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> like we're not we don't even need to bother you know using the gas to drive down there. We don't need to spend the uh, the cash to get that hotel room. Uh, the effort. It's 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 basically a foregone conclusion because Kirk is calling the game. Uh, I, I don't know if that it would be great if they could end that streak um but it, it has it has been kind of it's it's weird that that even has taken place at that, that that many in a row but um certainly just you know from a... I guess if you pay if you if you care about those type of things certainly kind of humorous but also maybe maybe a little concerning if if, if you follow that stuff too closely um uh, but uh yeah i, I but we should just say like this game is gonna be i think a real fun game to go check out i have I think it could go, could go a handful of ways, and I really think if if Oregon plays its A game and if the, if the offense gets back to what we've seen in the past, I, I know there's a lot of negativity right now oh, kind of based upon the way these last two games have gone, and, I, uh, and rightfully so given the way the last two games have played out, but I, I, I do think if Oregon can get it figured out and play its best, they absolutely are capable of beating this Utah team. I really think that, but it's just I don't know if we're going to get there. I don't know if you're going to see the best – We'll see on Friday.
1: Why will Oregon win? Like we've, we've, I think we've hashed out like all the concerns, all the issues that we've got with this Oregon football team. And, and yes, that's true. But at the same time, why, in your mind, why will Oregon win this game? Like if they do, what's the reasoning behind that?
0: If they do, Justin, if The Hurt silence ra- is deafening. <laughs> <laughs> Extremely loud silence. No, I, I think if. If they win, Justin Herbert has to play significantly better. You you look at the way this Utah defense plays, and it is statistically really, really impressive. They are first nationally against the run. Teams are averaging 56 yards rushing per game. They are third nationally in scoring defense. They are 14th in terms of passing yards, but they're fourth in terms of opposing quarterback rating, which is, to me, kind of the most accurate way to, to measure a defense, especially this far into a season where... You, you faced some good ones, and Utah has faced some good quarterbacks, and yet they are fourth in opposing quarterback rating. Um, but all of that said, it, we saw this year, and, and maybe I keep going back to this, and Utah has won eight straight since. But that USC game, I keep thinking of that of that game. Matt and I watched that from uh, um, what was it? A, a bar outside of Santa Clara? Yes. I guess there's a, a BJ's restaurant outside of Santa Clara. We watched that game, and USC was just able to outrun. Utah down the field with its wide receivers and stretch the field that way. And I know we haven't seen that all that often from Oregon, but I can't get that image out of my head of like beating Utah, I think just requires out-athleting them down the field. And I don't know if Oregon necessarily has the the horses to do that. Um, they don't have a Michael Pittman who is just absolutely incredible in that game or Tyler Vons or an Amon Sop, Amon Rossi Brown who, who both had pretty strong games too. Um, but I think they've got to find a way to stretch the game vertically um, with the passing attack. and Defensively, you've got to find a way to stop Zach Moss, and that's going to be a real challenge. He is, I think, undoubtedly the best running back Oregon has faced this year. He's the leader in the Pac-12 in rushing and rushing touchdowns. Um I kind of ran through how he's played recently, but he's playing his best football right now. He is a big, bruising physical guy, and Oregon didn't even face him last year um, when they lost in Salt Lake. He was out of that game, but um, yeah, I think you got to find a way to stop Zach Moss and the offense. I think the passing attack is going to have to pace it because given the way teams have struggled to run against this Utah defense, I'm not expecting this is a game where CJ Verdell is going to run for a hundred yards or Oregon's going to run for 200 yards. I think getting to a hundred yards would feel like a victory, um, against a defense this good.
1: Feels like this game is going to be won by Herbert, right? Like, like, if Oregon wins this game, it's because Herbert comes out and has a, a really big offensive performance for Oregon. And I, I I go back to, like, all of the big games that Oregon has played this season um, or just over the course of Herbert's entire career. Like, it, it feels like the biggest of big games, he usually shows up and yeah. plays, you know, Team has also kind of shown that they kind of play the level of of their competition, where you know if, if they're not playing an elite team, you know we've we've seen them either have slow starts or they've they've played sloppy, and you know that's prevented a game from being seventy to, to ten and, and it, instead being you know forty nine to, to, to seventeen, something of that nature. You know, still blowout win, but it could have gotten you know significantly worse. Um, and then I go back to. So I, I think that's one aspect of this. And then, you know, look, Washington, Utah, they've only played, I, I, I think, two really good offenses all year. Washington State's is fifth in the country, and obviously Utah crushed the, the Cougars. Uh, yeah. that, that was a 38-13 game at home. Um, and then the, the other top 25 offense that they've played this year in terms of moving the football, just yards per game, USC nineteenth in the country. So if if and they lost that one. You know, and then their next yep. closest is Arizona at thirty nine, BYU at forty. Uh and then they've they've got some teams against uh let's see here, UCLA at sixty three, OSU at fifty nine, UW at seventy five, Colorado at eighty four, Northern Illinois at one hundred and five, Idaho States not you know not in the FBS level, so they don't count. Um, you know, they haven't played very many high-powered offenses, and so maybe you you look at it and say, well, you know, even though Oregon has struggled, you know, they're just outside the top 25 at 27th in, in the country. Maybe maybe that's a reasoning of hope for why this team can win. And I I, I still go back though to, to Herbert. Like I think everything feels like this is a game that falls on him. If he plays well, I think Oregon not only has a chance but they'll probably win. Um, but if if Oregon doesn't have a good game offensively, there's there's just very I, I have very little confidence in them winning this football game.
0: I think a good point in terms of the caliber of offenses uh, Utah has faced, and really USC and Washington State, like you said, the top two they've played. Those were games played in September. Um, yep. that means they went the months of October and November. And I'm not sitting here trying to like minimize Utah's run because they've won eight it's straight. It's impressive, and they've completely just. Dominated every single one of those games besides the Washington game during that stretch. I mean, every other game was a complete blowout. Um, but you're right; Oregon is the best offense they have faced in a
1: in two months.
0: months. Yeah, in two months. You know, you, you look at it. You know, September 20th was USC, and September 28th was Washington State. Um, now, the offense that we've seen from Oregon the last couple of weeks has not been an offense that is sure. the top a top 25 offense, but The offense that put up, what was it, 56 against USC not that long ago? Yep. That put up... uh, 49 against Arizona? Yeah, yeah, 45 against Colorado, 37 against Washington State that had these big games. That offense, you know, this is not... These players are still on this football team. They're still capable of doing that. We just haven't seen it um, now in a couple of weeks. So, I mean, and that's kind of what I was getting at the beginning. Like, I, I think... It's easy to go, Utah's unbeatable. They've been just trashing every every team in their wake. But Oregon can just figure it out and play. get back to playing the level of football they were playing in early November and, you know, in, in late October, winning some really tight games against good teams or blowing out a USC team. Uh, there's no reason they can't be competitive with Utah. And like you said, there's no reason they can't win the game. But uh, it, it's going to be a tall, tall task.
1: Their last eight games, okay, Colorado- 84th best offense in the country from a yards-per-game perspective. Uh, U- Arizona, 39th. UCLA, 63rd. Washington, 75th. California, 117th. Arizona State, 88th. And Oregon State, 59th. So, like, since September, since the beginning of October, they haven't played an offense that's better than 39th in the country. And I'm not trying to take away what they've done because it's, it's, they are hands down the best defense in the country. I mean, in, in the conference, without a doubt. But I think they're kind of going through that stretch of the, of the year where Oregon earlier in the year went through where they played some of these just horrific teams, uh, in the conference and dominated Nevada. It started with Nevada and Montana on conference, but then they played Stanford, then they played California, then they played Colorado, and everyone was like, "Let's anoint Andy Avalos as the defensive coordinator of the year. He's going to be head coach. This is the greatest defense that Oregon's ever had. We, I mean, the school even acknowledged Game Green 2.0, right? And you know, because they were they were beating teams: 77 to six, 35 to three, 21 to six, 17 to seven, 45 to three. I mean, teams didn't score a touchdown for five straight games." And it, it, in part, it was because they played some really bad offenses. Arizona, when they came to town, thirty-four to six. And then Oregon State, yeah, while well, Oregon struggled offensively. The defense still played really well, and they only allowed ten points. Um, and so I, I, I mean, I, I don't think Oregon is gonna get if offensively if they don't get going. Yeah, they could get steamrolled, but. And I, I would probably say Utah is probably the better team right now, and they are more likely to win this game. But I don't think it's even close to a long shot that Oregon comes out of this victorious, or even maybe they even win by a touchdown or or or, or eight points or nine points. Like it, that wouldn't surprise me.
0: No, no, it wouldn't either. Not not on my end. And uh, I think Oregon making sure that they're they're healthy, uh, j- getting Jake cans available, part. that would be huge. Um, I I mean I. I just kind of feel like you look at these last two games where Hanson's either missed the second half against Arizona State or, or the whole game against Oregon State, and the offense has been a little bit off in both of those, you know, all six of those quarters. And I like part of me does wonder, is some of that, just the rhythm of the offense being a little bit off of that, you're, you know, your four-year starting center, um, is he available this week? Uh How healthy is C.J. Verdell? You're going to need some power running against this Utah rush defense. Uh, if he's not full strength or he's not able to give it, uh, you know, more than a handful of carries. I think, you yeah, I see a lot of Cyrus Hibibilikio in terms of just the physicality required. And then Jalen Uh you know, I know he led the team in receptions last game, but obviously it wasn't that, you know, he missed the Arizona State game. What's his health like? Other players that are banged, banged up, and uh, what's their health? But uh, Hanson in particular is the one where you go, if he's fully healthy, you feel, I think I feel a little bit better about how this game plays out. But if he's out again, um it does seem like there's a weird correlation with, with his health and, and, that kind of the way this offense is moving. And maybe that's just happenstance and we're kind of making, you know, a mountain out of a molehill here, but it does feel significant that the offense has played probably two of its worst, um, games with, with him sidelined.
1: All right. That's going to do it for us here on the and Audibles podcast. Lots to get to, uh, for this football game later on this week at, Santa Clara at Levi's Stadium against the Utah Utes. The Utes are playing for the Pac-12 championship as well. They're also playing for a spot in the college football playoff. Uh, we'll, we'll discuss more on that down the road. We'll also have a, a Utah Insider on to talk about that, get you ready for the football game. Uh, and lots to get to uh, throughout the week. And I also want to remind fans, if you haven't subscribed to DuckTerritory.com yet, you can get an annual subscription for 75% off. That's an unreal amount of money, uh, saved, insane value. Highly encourage you guys to go check that out. So for Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Bream, thank you and you've been listening to the Auds and Audibles podcast.
0: Adios, and he goes.